up? Welcome to Textual Healing. I'm your host, Mallory Smart. On today's podcast, I'll be interviewing literary icon Aaron Birch himself. Aaron Birch is the author of the memoir slash literary analysis, Stephen King's The Body, the short story collection, Backswing, and the novella, How to Predict the Weather. He is also the founding editor of Hobart. In this episode, we talk about his music essays, concert experiences, how Hobart got started, and he even graciously took the time to explain what the hell a youth group lock-in is. I didn't know. I'm sure so many more of you actually have a better idea of it. I don't want to give away the entire episode, so I think it's time to get to it. Hey, Mallory. I like that you just cracked a beer open. I did too. <laughs> it seemed like uh, either, either I don't know, excuse or justification, or uh, podcast seemed like a good a good reason for a morning beer on a on a Tuesday. It really did. I mean, I cracked mine open before yours, so I was like, "Thank God, it's fine." <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's a writer thing. I don't know. Maybe it gives me, you know, like I don't know, gives me something to fidget with. And uh, <laughs> are you one of those people that need something like to be in your hand constantly? I do. I do fidget a lot. Yeah, or yeah, a decent amount. That's why I always have coffee with me whenever I like do readings and everything. That's how that accidentally became my <clears throat> brand. <laughs> yeah i I started. I didn't drink coffee until I was like thirty. Um, and I really started drinking, I feel like as, as much because I just liked the process of like holding a mug in my hand and like having it with me. And I just kind of liked the, uh, the ritual of it even more than I liked it. And then I, and then, you know, you sort of do it enough and, and start to like it and then love it and then become addicted to it or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, that's about me. I mean, I started a little earlier. My boyfriend is the person who really got me into coffee. Now he hates that he caused the addiction, but yeah. (laughs) But before that, like, I'd never gone to, like, Starbucks or a coffee shop. Like, I went to a coffee shop just to, like, check out the readings. Like, I wouldn't actually order coffee. Right. Yeah. But now I have every coffee maker known to man in a (laughs) little coffee corner. (laughs) Nice. And we have like a sign that does all the coffee recipes that we might need. Nice. Yeah. We, we're a little excessive. Anytime someone comes to our house, they're like, how much coffee do you drink? And we're like, I don't know, a lot. Yeah, I, I go through it. I This last semester, I my first teaching class uh wasn't until noon i had a a noon and then a 1 and then and then a 2:30 and usually i'm i'm pretty much done with coffee more or less by noon um but i like having having the mug while i'm while i'm teaching and then doubly so while teaching on zoom it just again kind of gives me something to fidget with gives me something to do breaks up the awkwardness of just like staring into my screen, you know, gives me a couple seconds of like, Oh, I'll sip. Um, and, and the first few weeks of the semester though, I would just by my two o'clock class, I would be so over caffeinated because normally 
I've like weaned myself off by noon, but then I keep drinking just as something to do while teaching. Uh, so a few weeks into the semester, I, I finally started getting myself onto some tea just so I could like, uh, keep my shit together, <laughs> but then also still have the mug to fidget with. <laughs> it's so funny. I had a surgery like, uh, two months ago and to prepare for it, I wasn't allowed to have any caffeine. And I told my therapist about that. And she's like, this is a good thing. You can slowly wean yourself off coffee and not have the withdrawal. And I was like, right. Lady, you think I'm going to like give up coffee <laughs> after the surgery? Like I'm going right back on. Yeah. Yeah. So what's teaching on Zoom like? Um, awful <laughs> with, with small little m moments of, uh, of joy or success. Um, I don't know. It, it was, it was all right. It was definitely like a challenge, um, both in general and, and then especially just to become accustomed to, um, I, you know, I, I feel like one of the things that I most like about teaching is, is being in the classroom is the community aspect of it. Um, I mean, I kind of weirdly like the, the performative aspect of, of, of it. Um, and I like the kind of like in classroom camaraderie mm -hmm. and I feel like, you know, zoom kind of stripped all of that away, uh, and just left the teaching part. <laughs> um, and so I definitely had to recalibrate I, I'm, I'm remiss to, to admit it, but it, it probably made me a better teacher because I, I had to actually think about, um, lesson plans a, a little bit more creatively and thoughtfully and, and not just rely on, um, you know, in, in classroom personality or whatever, um, I was going to ask, it, like, do you do anything extra during the Zoom classes to, like, make sure you've got their attention? Not really. Although, I guess, um, I mean, trying to mix up activities, right, and trying to sort of, like, trying never to get stuck on one thing for too long, kind of knowing that zoom fatigue is a thing and it's 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 easy to zone out as a student in the classroom and then that's tenfold the case on zoom so you know trying to kind of chunk things up right like only lecture for for a short amount of time and then put them into breakout rooms trying to be um as as specific and focused as possible in, in breakout rooms. So like, you know, talk about these two things. And then when we come back together, sh share your answers with the class or share your answers in chat or, or something. And so trying to be really like focused and specific, like, okay, we're going to do this for five minutes and then we're going to do a free write and then we're going to do breakout rooms and then we're going to do this. And so trying to like, just keep it, uh, Active and, and varied. Yeah. It's pretty lit. Yeah. I have a friend who is a teacher, 
And they did it where to keep people's focus, they actually did different LED lights in the background every time they taught. And oh, they did funny. mood music, like kind of low, kind of like Neil deGrasse <laughs> Tyson's Cosmos. Right, right. Yeah. I feel like if I were to teach, I'd be that teacher, but I, I can never teach. I hate students. <laughs> <laughs> I was on track to become a professor, and then I was just like, no, I, I can't handle people, like, especially ones that don't want to be in the class, but they have to. So, I don't know. Do you have any of those? Sure. Um, and you, I mean, you definitely find yourself um, f- focusing on or, or leaning into or just extra appreciating the students who who are into it and who give you their attention. Um, and, and then maybe a little bit of the reverse happens where, you know, you kind of take it as a challenge to try to win over the, the student who, who doesn't want to be there or who doesn't like writing or, or doesn't think they like writing. And so you're trying to, you know, it's almost like a, this challenge to, to win them over. Um, I feel like that but, would cause a lot of burnout. It's, I mean, this is sort of why why summers and uh, and and winter breaks and and are such a thing, right? Like, I feel like by the end of the semester, I mean, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty wiped. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty exhausting. Both kind of. Uh, on that macro level of the semester and then also just kind of day by day. I mean, I'm, I've been doing it long enough that maybe I shouldn't still be surprised by this, but I'm, I'm often still surprised at the end of a day of teaching how, how exhausted I am, both kind of mentally and also physically. It's like, I'll, I'll teach three classes and, uh, and, and I'm, I'm pretty wiped. <laughs> yeah, I definitely imagine you would be. That's why I'm like, I couldn't do it. Like, also, like, you don't always get to, like, teach the curriculum you want to teach. And that sounds really frustrating. I feel like the only way I would ever be, like, a professor is if I was able to, like, pick the exact subject. Um, I have a history degree. And, yeah, my exact subject that I would pick is not a common one. So, like, I could never do, like, intro to history or something. Because I'm the person who I... I'd be the professor who goes like off of tangents and everything. I wouldn't be able to stick to the point. I definitely go off on tangents. Um, I feel like I, I'm I'm pretty lucky where I am, where I have a some decent leniency to like do do what I want, um, and then you know it's finding that middle ground of of what you want and then what the class or university or or whatever expectations are um and and i think kind of figuring that out is um is part of the process itself too right like i feel like my first couple of years i i maybe over leaned into just like what i thought would be fun or what i wanted to do um and and maybe got a, a little bit away from, you know, what are, what are the students actually wanting and needing and, and hoping to get out of the class? And what is the uh, university like wanting me to 
um, prioritize. And I've definitely had a couple other classes where I probably went the other way and, and I didn't have very much fun doing it, but, but mm-hmm. over relied on, on that sort of, um, you know, those bullet points that I was supposed to hit or whatever. But I feel like I've gotten better at kind of melding the two. Um, some of that is in topic. Some of it's in, in the readings you give and, and kind of how you, how you want to frame things. Um, how, yeah. how do you actually manage to find time to like do all that? Cause like, I know that that's a huge effort that you're doing and also run a literary press and write and everything. Um, I think probably everything gets a little bit more half-assed than it maybe seems <laughs> from the outside. Um, uh, I don't know. I often think and say that I'm not very good at time management, but I guess the actuality is, is I'm probably better at it than I think that I am. Um, and then also I just, um, or, or maybe if I were better at it, I wouldn't have the, the moments of super stressful, late at night or first thing in the morning. Oh no, I haven't prepped for class. I've got to like, class is going to go awful moments. Um, which, which definitely happens all the time. <laughs> um, to be fair, I don't think the students care as much. <laughs> I don't think they do either. I mean, it's the, you know, like I spend all of this time stressing out on like, Oh no, they'll, they'll know I'm less prepared or they'll, they'll wonder why I didn't do this. And, and, you know, I feel for like the most part they roll with whatever I do and they, and they some combo of don't know better and, and don't care. <laughs> and then also I, I'm probably doing a, a better job than it feels like I am often. Right. And so, um, more I days than like not, it's are... like, Oh, it was fine. Even though <laughs> I just stressed myself the fuck out over it. That would be like their favorite day, probably. Yeah. it's And it's actually wild how often those days that are like, I don't know what I'm doing today. And you'll throw together a lesson plan super last minute. And it'll be like one of the best days of the semester. And then you'll have this day that you spent all this time prepping and planning for. And it'll just f- fall flat. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't think I could teach that way because I am probably like the highly like type A high maintenance teacher. And it would almost break my heart if I like had students that weren't into it. I would just be like, please take another class. (laughs) Because I don't know how to actually like talk down with history, especially people that aren't really into it. Like I even help my nieces with homework occasionally and they'll ask me history questions and then like, an hour later, they're like, you, you answered it like an hour ago. <laughs> yeah. I mean, teaching writing is, is a kind of weird thing. Unlike, I mean, I haven't, you know, I obviously haven't taught any other discipline. And so I don't totally know how it would go. But I feel like writing is interesting because... Because it's so applicable to everyone. Everyone is going to have to do it in life, in their other classes. 
everyone does it to some degree on, on their own, right? Like unlike, I mean, I don't do anything in my life that's, that's history like <laughs> recent, but like almost everybody does some kind of writing. Yeah. So, so there's this touch point. Um, but then on, on the flip side of that, I mean, especially if you're teaching comp, if you're teaching like an intro English class, you know, half of those students are probably like, I don't really like reading and writing. I'm a math and sciences person. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but then, because I, I feel know, like you would have to like kind of drag those people along throughout the semester. A little bit, a little bit. Although, also, th there's a kind of joy in like getting them to like the class. Um, maybe best case scenario, getting them to love the class or, or low level, maybe they didn't love it, but they at the very least liked it more than they thought they would. And so, you know, s some of my big goal in writing in teaching writing, kind of any writing class, but maybe especially that intro class is like getting them to figure out what they want to say on the page just like better or more clearly or more interestingly. And, and some of that is then like letting them write about something that they care about, you know? So it's like, it's not a lit course where they have to write about some book that I assigned that they thought was boring. It's like a lot of the essays are, you get to choose your topic. Now let's figure out a valid, interesting you know, complex way of, of thinking about and, and writing about that topic. And hopefully because it's a topic that you care about, you'll, you'll sort of lean into, even if you don't like writing, mm -hmm. at least the thing that you're writing about you like. So. That's pretty lit. Do your students <laughs> yeah. actually know that like you're in publishing and are a writer or do you like keep that very separately? <clears throat> um, I, I talk about it. Um, but not overly so. I talk about my own writing more than I talk about publishing. Um, and I mostly talk about my own writing um, to try to be a kind of like uh, practice what I preach type stuff, right? Like I, I talk about knowing and understanding the frustrations of writing mm -hmm. uh, in, in ways that I'm, I'm hopefully helping them write, you know, a college freshman English essay, but then also I'm, I'm spinning it as, you know, I have similar frustrations day to day trying to work on this novel or trying to, and, and sort of, and so I'm I'm making a lot of those connections and and saying, you know, I'm not just giving you busy work or I'm not just like giving you this exercise just because, but this is these are strategies that I've found helpful or lessons I've learned, not just as a teacher, but but like as a writer myself. Yeah. So when you said novel, were you referring to uh this was all before the internet? So this was all before the internet is, is a book of, of, of essays. It's like a, it's kind of like a memoir in essays. Um, and I started writing those for a handful of reasons, but, but one of the 
inspirations or encouragements um, was actually teaching these kinds of freshman English essays where, you know, I, I came to teaching and came to writing and, and, and publishing kind of all through, through fiction. Uh, my, my biggest interests when starting Hobart was publishing fiction. And it's, it's what I, I think of myself as a fiction writer and, and got my MFA in fiction. Uh, and then was teaching, all of these essays in, in freshman English and, and ended up kind of writing similar kinds of essays than I was having them write or, or taking a lot of those lessons and turning them on myself. Um, mm-hmm. And so some that kind of turned into some of those like personal music essays um, and sort of along those lines of like encouraging the students to try to write about things that they care about um, I mean, I care about pop culture and music and movies and TV a lot. And so that kind of turned into the, these, these music essays. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I talk about that with them that like, you know, you don't, writing essays doesn't have to be about some, this traditional, what you think as a, as a student, what you think an essay is, but you can write about your love for, Nirvana or, or your 12 year old love for new kids on the block or whatever. (laughs) And you can, and you can investigate that. And, um, and then we kind of talk about what that means. New kids on the block is actually the first concert I ever went to. Really? (laughs) And their opener was Hootie and the Blowfish. My sister was supposed to be babysitting me. And then she last minute got the tickets and was like, you're coming. (laughs) How, how old were you? I had to be like five. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was fun though. Do do you and do you remember it pretty pretty vividly, pretty well? I wouldn't say vividly. I remember aspects of it, but there are a lot of pictures. Yeah. So through the pictures <laughs> and my sister's very half drunken memory helps. That's funny. Yeah. yeah. She was the fun babysitter. <laughs> yeah. That's great. What was your first concert? It was MC Hammer. And uh, I think I was 10, uh, 10 or 12. I might have been 12. Um, and Vanilla Ice was supposed to open. But then uh, in between, like when he had booked the tour as opener and then when when I saw it or when the tour started or whatever, um, Ice Ice Baby like exploded. Uh, and so he kind of like dropped out of that and 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 did his own headlining tour. Um, Does but, he have yeah. any other popular songs? I know he did like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles song and then yeah, Ice Ice Baby. Yeah, that was pretty big. The, the, the Ninja Turtles song was pretty big. Um, I mean, there were a couple other singles at the time. Uh, and, you know, as, as a 12-year-old, I I loved that album. Uh kind of maybe top to bottom. Um but but nothing other than Ice Ice Baby has has kind of hung on, I don't think. Do you have that issue? I know I have it where you hear like the opening and you're like under pressure, and then you're like, no, Ice Ice Baby. Yeah, and I, I feel like whenever I hear the opening, I guess more often than not, I'm I'm always hearing it on I'm hearing under pressure on the radio. Yeah. And so then my brain is like, oh, Ice Ice Baby. Um, yeah. It's weird. 
it's fun like when people like do like uh what do they call it when they take uh chords from other songs it's not sample sampling yes there you go you're cooler than (laughs) me you know more (laughs) you are now sensei yes I'll walk you through this. Yeah. You're definitely Do some wax the music on guy. wax off. <laughs> hey, that's like my favorite part of that movie. <laughs> I like your music essays though. I was reading through them um, the first time you sent them to me and then last night. So I was like, you know, need them fresh in my mind. Would you say, cause like, you know, you hit nine inch nails, Alice in Chains, Nirvana. Are those like, is that your favorite sound? Yeah, I mean, so um, th- those were, f- for whatever reason, I-, I don't know if those were what journals liked best or if they were what I what I wrote the best, but, but those are kind of from the, the middle of the book, and those are the ones that got published. So all kind of like, you know, that 90s... Um, uh, harder uh, sort of grunge into uh, sound. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess that's sort of, you know, s- some parts of th- that's the music that was formative to me. Um, and so they, it's the real kind of like heart of, of that essay collection because those bands were kind of like changing music at the same time as I was, um, you know, 14, 15, 16. Uh, and so that was like prime formative music listening person changing <laughs> time in your life. And, and, and then also I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. So. Oh, that's uh, rad as this, fuck. Where? This, uh, Tacoma. Okay. No. Uh, so I grew up in Tacoma, um, and then went to college in Seattle. Um, and so a lot of those essays are, or especially that sound, uh, you know, like grunge hit and f- it feels like, or it felt like it kind of changed music and kind of changed the world. I don't know like how much that's true and how much it just felt like it was true when I was, you know, 14. Um, and I felt both, uh, both at the time and then now looking back as, as kind of like the epicenter of this, but then also kind of just barely on the outside. So mm-hmm. like, I didn't really see any of those bands live. Cause I feel like I was just a little too young um, and wasn't really like going to concerts yet. Whereas friends who had older brothers were seeing, you know, Soundgarden and Nirvana in, in like club shows and stuff. Um, and then also when you're, when you're that age, I mean, I was, I was in Tacoma, which is an hour South of Seattle, which is like right there, uh, in when thinking about the country, <laughs> but mm-hmm. like when you're 14, an hour up the freeway seems, you know, a, a world away. It's like uh, a road trip. Yeah. Yeah. So I think now, I think nothing of a, a multi-hour road trip, but at the time, my dad would take me up to Mariners games and it would be a whole thing to like, you know, it's, it's this whole huge adventure of this, you know, 50 minute drive North. Uh, Did you, know, you have, have parents to, that would like actually kind of overpack for you too? Like, Oh my God, it's going to be a long drive. 
I don't know if they would, but I, I probably would, right? I would be like, oh, I need to take my Walkman. I need to take my Game Boy. I need to, like, take a a, a sketchbook to draw. Like, how am I going to fill all this time? I'm going to be so, you know, uh, it's just like a whole, a whole event. Do you still have your Walkman? Uh, I don't. Uh, um, I'm trying to, like, take I, a gauge of, like, how many people still have those. Yeah. Um, I bought a few years ago, I bought like a little uh, tape player uh, radio stereo for myself. Um, Where'd you get it? I think I just bought it at, I think just like Target or something. Um, And I have... I got rid of most of all my old tapes, but, but I kept all of, um, I, I kept a bunch of, uh, recordable tapes, Mm -hmm. right? So, so I got rid of the stuff that was just kind of, I didn't need to keep because it was just sort of standard, uh, standard issue or whatever, but Mm -hmm. I kept all of these, handfuls of tapes that I would like tape audio off the TV uh, of like, you know, Nirvana unplugged before uh, Spotify before it was got out that. on CD or whatever. I had like, you know, taped it off my uh, TV with like hitting pause during commercials and everything. Um, and then also in late high school or, or really like early college, I got into a little bit of like a bootleg cassette tape. Uh, phase. (laughs) And so while writing the music essays, one of the later essays in the book is, uh, is about that phase in my life. And, and I was, I was super into Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam was like my, my favorite. Uh, So I got into collecting bootleg Pearl Jam concert tapes and then that led me into a handful of other bootleg tapes where, like, I didn't really care about Fish or Grateful Dead, and those were kind of, like, the go-tos. But then I got into Dave Matthews' band for a while, <laughs> uh, and I have one tape. We all did. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was a thing. Uh, Especially and, if you're white. It's like a yeah, tradition. Yeah. Um, and I have one tape where he covered a Marilyn Manson song in concert. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wrote an essay kind of about that. That's about, you know, it's about bootleg tape collecting. It's about how much I love Pearl Jam, how like normie my, my Pearl Jam and then into Dave Matthews band, like made me and, and how that normie youth group kid was totally like afraid of Marilyn Manson because that's those early videos seemed so scary and um, and like devil adjacent uh, in ways that that kind of terrified me. <laughs> Does it make you feel any better now that he's actually getting canceled? Or <laughs> I don't I don't care. One way I mean, uh, I guess I shouldn't say I don't care in that like. I think know, people get uh, that, yeah. Uh, but like, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't hold any investment uh, toward toward him. But I, I think that that phase in the '90s of of how scary it seemed, I think, was 
at least personally interesting, if not sort of kind of larger culturally interesting. He was really like, I feel in my opinion, like big into the occult and stuff. And there was definitely like satanic images and everything. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there were stories of him like, you know, tearing a Bible on stage or whatever, which now seems just like, Oh, obviously like it was just, just like this attention getting, uh, thing. But uh, as a as a pretty straight laced teenage youth group kid, I mean, I like that was real. That was real like heresy to me, <laughs> and I was like, how how dare he? Like he's, uh, like isn't he scared that he's gonna go to hell? <laughs> See, for him, I think he would love to go to hell. Sure, but you know that's nothing compared to Ozzy Osbourne uh, biting a real bat's head off accidentally. Yeah. But then that was sort of like, that was, there's something about that, that like it was enough before my time and sounded ridiculous enough that like I, I knew and could compute that that was theater. Mm -hmm. Whereas I couldn't quite justify to myself Manson in a similar way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But when obviously, you say the like, Bible same lineage. <laughs> did you grow up religious? I did, yeah. How do you think that affects you now? Because um, <clears throat> it's not seen, like, really in your writing. I've never really noticed it. Oh, interesting. So, I mean, uh, so earlier I said I'm, I'm, I'm working on a novel. Uh, and so I, I spent a a couple of years working on this essay collection of music essays. Um, and I guess it's there a little bit. I, I think it's in my writing as, as experience rather than sort of like the morality or spirituality or, or kind of whatever that means. But I think, you know, in, in that Nirvana essay, I think I write a little bit about how, um, I mean, I found like I found out Cobain had killed himself while on uh, a mission trip, and we we walked into a grocery store uh, like with my youth group. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, part of the reason I was so scared of that Nine Inch Nails, uh, and I was I was like afraid of these like subliminal messages coming through Trent Reznor was because of that youth group uh, upbringing. Um, and then, and then the novel that I'm working on now is is a um, is a youth group lock-in novel. So, uh, so it's very much there. But uh, what is that? What is a lock-in? Yeah, I, I, I'm sure we do it here in Illinois, but I've never experienced one. Sure. So it would be a it would be like an overnight. Uh, an overnight stay at, at the church um, where, where they would like lock you in. So you couldn't leave, um, which, you know, now when you kind of think that through, like if you're having an overnight stay, I don't know why you would leave unless you had to. And even though technically you were locked in, like if you had to, you, you could, but that was kind of the, the gist, right. As you would get together, uh, in the evening, uh, 
You would have dinner together. We we would often go out on an outing. Uh, so we would go to like uh, the local ice rink and play broom hockey or something. <laughs> uh, and then we would come back to the church. And then like once we were back at the church, they would like probably to some degree make a production of, okay, like we're locking the doors now. Like they're, um, we are, we're here for the night. And then the rest of the night would be some combination of worship and games and movie watching. Um, and then. Did the movies you know, and stuff would, have to like, were they related to religion or just like whatever they felt was like G rated for you guys? I feel like, yeah, I feel like the latter. So I could, I can't remember what movies we watched. Um, although I don't remember watching like any specifically religious movies. Um, and I, I know when I first started working on the novel, I think I, I tweeted something like asking other people who had grown up in youth group, if they had gone to lock-ins and like what the, what the schedule of events had been. Uh, and many people mentioned watching a movie and that seemed to range everything from, pretty religious movies from, uh, I don't know, a left behind movie or something. <laughs> uh, I mean, those came out after, after my time in youth group, but I think maybe younger people had mentioned that, um, all the way up to just kind of watching like labyrinth or something. Um, and, and it just seemed like, yeah, a more G rated like group activity. Mm -hmm. And then everybody would bring, uh, a sleeping bag. Um, but then the goal of the night, you know, if you're, if you're 16 and and having a giant sleepover with all your youth group friends would be to, to stay up all night. That would be like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna push through. And then you I know, feel like that's all you. sleepover rules. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just like the, I guess the short answer is I could have just said it's a, it's, it's a youth group sleepover. <laughs> um, <laughs> And then filled with, you know, youth groupy stuff. Yeah, I was mainly curious if they tried to slip in anything religious or not into there. What religion was it? Because that sounds a little fringe. Uh, so I grew up Presbyterian, which is kind of like, you know, sort of laid back Protestant. Um, actually grew up uh, Mormon till I was eight or nine. That is a hell of my, a switch. Yeah. My family left Mormonism uh, when I was eight or nine. And then we kind of like church hopped for a while and ended up landing Presbyterian. So then the book of the essays kind of like tracks. I mean, I don't really think of this, but it also kind of tracks my uh, religion story. Mm -hmm. In in that the first essay uh, is about Dire Straits' Money for Nothing, which was my favorite song when I was like eight, nine years old. And it was my favorite music video. Um, and then at eight, I was baptized in the Mormon church. You have this like, um, uh, what's it called? Um, From what I've seen in movies, like you go into like a kind of, pool of holy water yeah yeah so i was baptized uh by my dad who was like an elder in the church 
uh, and you both get in this like giant, giant bathtub. Uh, you're wearing kind of like all white uh, pajama, you know, spiritual pajamas. Uh, and then it's this full body submersion in this uh, giant bathtub and in a specific uh, baptism room in, in the church. Um, oh, it's bugging me now that I can't think of what it's called. Um, um, I personally have repressed my religious days. I was raised Catholic (laughs) and that's like one of like the, I don't know anyone who was raised Catholic that stayed Catholic. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. That seems to be the, especially like the, the, I've been surprised how many writers I've met who've, who grew up in the church or in one church or another, uh, and, and then have, have left, but it seems like a, a relatively common bonding story. Mm-hmm. Um, age of accountability. So that's, so at eight, uh, you're now like accountable. Uh, so anything before eight, uh, if you, if you die, you just go to heaven because you can't be, uh, cause you don't know better. And then, and then at eight, now, now you know enough <laughs> about sin to, to be better, I guess. And so, and so at eight, you're, you're baptized. So I was baptized in the Mormon church. Uh, so this first essay in the, in the collection is kind of, um, you know, about loving, uh, money for nothing and being baptized and, and sort of being eight, nine years old. And then it kind of tracks through, um, youth group in the, in, in the Pacific Northwest in the nineties and then growing up and then kind of up until I think the last essay in the book is uh, it ends in 2001 when I was uh, graduated college and moved away uh, from home for the first time and was kind of uh, drifting away from religion. And then the music connection is like uh, Napster closed down. And that had been like a big deal in college. Uh, and so it kind of opens um, with that top forty music, and then and then ends with with kind of the str- start music streaming and a little bit. You said um, now I didn't get a chance to like read it yet, but you have uh, an essay called "I Never Made Anyone a Mixtape." Have yeah. you ever burned a CD? That was yes. like kind of like a mixtape for anybody. Yeah. So, and it was, it was like a, you know, it was like a interesting title or interesting first sentence because uh, uh, a Hobart contributor who puts together uh, these chapbooks was putting one together that was specifically cassette themed. And so I was thinking about how I don't think I ever specifically made anyone a mixtape, although all of these mixtape adjacent things, right? Like mix CDs a little later. And my friends and I would, would tape and record tapes for each other, but not really like mixtapes, but my friend would like, you know, buy Nirvana's Nevermind and then, and then make a copy for me and be like, you need to listen to this. This is, this is what's going to be cool. Uh, I feel like today's equivalent would be like making Spotify playlists or something. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever do those? I don't. Oh, you got it. Do you not have Spotify? 
I don't. What do you use to listen to music on? Um, I listen to music uh, on Apple Music. Oh, that makes uh, sense then, yeah. And um, and then uh, at home, I, I listen to a lot of records. Same here. I have a record yeah. player, too. I yeah. listen to Spotify while working out, mainly. Yeah, I listen to that's that's my primary Apple Music listen is like when going on a run. I have a couple running mixes and um and also good for drives. Yeah. I I listen to a lot of podcasts when driving around. Um I guess that's how old I am, right? It's like I'm uh I don't listen to a lot of music anymore. I just listen to people talk. Um but then I love a couple podcasts summers, like, like they're yeah. like supposed to be like the equivalent of what AM radio was supposed to be, but better. <laughs> right. I mean, they're great. I mean, like, uh, and then a couple of years ago, I took a road trip back home, back out to Tacoma and spent the summer there and then, and then drove back to Michigan at the end of the summer. Um, and I don't know why, except that I thought it was funny. Maybe I, I gave myself the rule that I I wouldn't stream any music on the drive. And I took, I have a couple of old CD books still full of CDs that are pretty much all still from the late nineties, early two thousands. So the whole drive, I just listened to CDs like old, old school road trip style. I dig that. I dig that. (laughs) One of the first big road trips I went to, um, was with these guys from Cornell and they had a really old beaten up, uh, minivan and it could only play cassettes. So we actually had to stop at a Walmart and just find cassettes with any music that we liked. And we had to do that all the way to San Francisco. Oh, funny. Yeah. I feel like I remember doing that a couple times in the, in the early two thousands where I guess at that point it was I had a CD player in the car, but drove up and down the West Coast a few times. And sometimes I would be like, I, I need, I need something new. So I would find, you know, some kind of, I would pull over in some random town and like buy CDs specifically just to, to get to, to feed some new music into the drive. I like that you could always pull into a random town and they're actually the ones most likely to have the weird item you need. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. What is your favorite road trip? Um, I mean, probably the one that I did a couple summers ago was, was I, I bought a new car, uh, right before the road trip. So the road trip itself felt like this um a little bit of a treat getting to be like in this brand new car i mean it wasn't brand new it was a couple years used but brand new to me and and newer than any car that that i had ever owned um and it was by myself and i was just um not really on any specific time frame uh i was telling somebody about this a couple days ago and telling her about uh, how I didn't have a plan or, or a time frame, And she was like, that stresses me out. I don't know. Like, like just hearing you talk about not knowing where you were going to sleep the next night, like is giving <laughs> me uh, a panic attack. Um, 
But then I, I stopped and saw a few friends along the way and, and then stopped sometimes and just did those weird random road trip things, right? Like I went to Carhenge in, in Nebraska, which is this weird like Stonehenge recreation of just like old cars. Um, and, uh, and weird stuff like that, just sort of, and, and it was a blast. What yeah. was that called again? Carhenge? Carhenge, yeah. In Nebraska. I'm adding that yeah. to my road trip list of things it's to great. see. It's great. Yeah. And then in, in Utah, I went and saw um, the Spiral Jetty on the Great Salt Lake, which years ago I had read like an essay about, I think in like the New York Times Magazine or something, and it and it always stuck with me and seemed cool. And so then when I was when I was in Utah, I was just like, oh, I should I should go see that. Uh, and I did, and it was it was amazing. It's pretty lit. I'd yeah. say the best thing I've come across um, in road trips is Waldrug. That's in, sure. Like, South Waldrug Dakota. is great. Yeah. I went there on my on my drive back. The Badlands is one of my f- favorite places in the country slash world. Oh yeah, um, love those two. Yeah, they're so close to each other. Yeah, yeah, it's right there. I feel like once you leave the Badlands, you start hitting like for the next hundred miles, like Waldrug signs it's a yeah yeah it's it's the whole thing like i feel like the signs are are as much of a thing as the as the drug itself right <laughs> like it's just the the anticipation building because there's nothing else out there too you're in the middle of nowhere so you're just like driving through signs. nothing you're like wall drug 100 miles wall drug 85 miles and it's just like this this weird like anticipatory kind of growing excitement well, they definitely know how to get people. That's good. That's right. I was weirded out when I saw Nomad Land and that wall drug was in that. And I was like, what? Oh, is it? Baby I haven't seen it there. Yet. I want to. Yeah, it's a decent movie. I don't think it's the movie for this year, but it, if it was made in any other year, I'd be like, that movie is good. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I recommend it. It's on Hulu. I mean, it's one of those, like, it's worth the watch. But what it is is um, it's mainly about how the 2008 recession affected baby boomers. And I felt that wasn't really great because it affected us um, millennials more. Right. And I feel like our story deserved to be shown much more than the baby like the few like six percent of baby boomers that were affected yeah but yeah it won the oscar and golden globe so just gotta shrug it off yeah yeah or also just like weren't i mean mean, pandemic reasons and everything there just weren't a ton of great movies last year right actually there are quite a few that i liked a lot of the winners at the oscars they felt like not a lot of them actually deserve to win. Huh. Um, I really was rooting for um, Promising Young Woman or uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. And third one I would like is uh, Trial of the Chicago 7. Oh. Huh. Yeah. They they were all more like on topic of like what our generation has been speaking about all year. Yeah. So it was weird that they picked uh, Nomadland. But it did give us an interesting thing. We now have our second female director who won Best Director. Yeah, that was rad. Yeah. So, what movie do you think has the best soundtrack? 
I don't know about best, but I mean, going back to those those formative music years is uh, the the ones that jumped to mind were um, the, those eclectic '90s movie soundtracks. So I guess the ones that jumped to mind are, of course, singles, um, and then. Um, I think about the Pulp Fiction soundtrack a lot. Oh, that's a good um, one. Think about the Natural Born Killers one, which was like uh, produced by or overseen by uh, Trent Reznor, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then oh, the Crow soundtrack was probably was probably my jam. That like that might have. I don't know if I would say it changed my life, but it, it might have actually shifted my life a little bit. Um, That's a badass like, one. Yeah, it definitely like opened up my eyes to music potential and and like darker music than than I had listened to before that. But like, you know, there were enough bands like I liked that movie. Uh, um. And there were enough bands on that soundtrack that I liked that then felt like this gateway drug into also a handful of other bands uh, that kind of um, felt really interestingly kind of exposure-y. Mm-hmm. So your music, it's definitely, I, I'm not trying to say like darker, but more edgier. That, it's definitely more reflective in your writing than in Hobart. <laughs> I don't know. Hobart seems like a kind of bright and shiny experimental place. Uh-huh. <laughs> Maybe it's that way just for me. I don't know. Do you have any of that reflected in the way that like you select writing or? Um, hmm. Are you the main person who like does readings? Cause I mean, I've gotten acceptance letters with uh, people from other names. <clears throat> Yeah, so Hobart works kind of interestingly that um, – so there's kind of like a whole team of editors, and I don't do that much with it anymore. I kind of I kind of oversee it all um, and, and try to kind of like keep it organized. Um, and, then I, and then I dip in and out kind of when I want to, um, which, which for the last few years has primarily meant like the – Every April, we do we devote April to to baseball, uh, and that's kind of my baby. And so I read all of those submissions, um, and then here and there I'll just like open up, you know, usually a specific genre. Like I'll I'll handle comic submissions, or I'll do a weird series like my first, and it's all sort of like my first CD, my first car, my first pocket knife or whatever um and then when i get busy or whatever i just kind of like close submissions for that genre but then all of the other stuff every every genre has three editors uh so fiction nonfiction, poetry have three editors each there's kind of like nine main editors maybe who like each rotate through months so Mm -hmm. every third month it's their turn again and then when it's their turn they kind of have they can kind of do whatever they want. Uh, and they read all of the submissions that month and accept and decline everything. Um, 
Was it hard to like get editors to be on the same page with you? It'll be like, this is what Hobart would accept or you just let it lie with them. I think I, I just kind of let it be up to them. I think the, the biggest thing is just, um, is just who you ask to be an editor and, and, you know, reaching out to people with in general uh s- similar taste or, or similar aesthetic um and i think it works a little bit both ways i think you know usually when we invite someone new to be an editor um for whatever reason like they've done enough to kind of show that they have Hobarty sensibilities, I guess. <laughs> and then also, I think Hobart has been around long enough that it has kind of formed and established its own vibe or energy. And so then I think. I think you could just describe kind of, it as Hobarty. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't totally know what it means. I mean, it's kind of like the old saying about porn right like i don't i don't know (laughs) i I don't know what it is but i know it when i see it (laughs) um and i think the editors kind of know that too and i i think they are kind of like oh i i like this piece but it doesn't feel right for hobart i feel like i'll i'll hear them say sometimes um so it's a little bit of a you know who you ask and and sort of choosing Hobarty uh, to keep running with that word, like choosing Hobarty people to be editors. And then they kind of also have some idea of what Hobart is in mind. Um, but then also I think the benefit of that is every time we ask someone new to be an editor, I think they expand the idea of Hobart a a little bit. Yeah, they bring a little something extra. Yeah. So I think that's one of the things that I really like about Hobart. And I think one of the things that's made it so strong is that combination of personal editor taste plus established Hobart vibe. Uh, And and then that vibe kind of gets expanded or, or, um, or pulled a little bit in in one direction or another in ways that I think has been definitely to its benefit. How long has it been around? Uh, almost twenty years. God um, damn, you've earned I your know. readership. <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah, I did, like it started. I mean, it started kind of as a lark, and and so I don't even totally know. Like there wasn't really an official like first issue or something. It all just kind of uh, bubbled up uh, somewhere end of two thousand one, early two thousand two. Mm-hmm. I really dig that. Is is it because Hobart has been around for so long that you started to do had or what? Yeah, I think a handful of reasons. I think. I don't think it was on purpose that Hobart spent around so long. So I would start a new thing. Although I think, I mean, I don't know if it was subconscious or if it just happened as a side effect, but I do think it gave me some excitement and energy for a new journal that 
I don't want to say I don't or have for Hobart, but it, it felt just kind of like, you know, new and shiny. Um, it was like a, a baby playing with a, a new toy that you gave it or whatever. I like um, the style. It kind of reminds me of a Tumblr, you know, when you'd get like the minimalistic themes like <clears throat> Air Theme or like Onfok and everything. Or yeah. yeah, I think that was definitely the... The goal was I hadn't thought about it as as like Tumblr, although you know I I, I liked Tumblr a lot in the um, in the two thousands, and then Hobart never looked super minimal like that. But when I started Hobart, there were a bunch of other sites who kind of had that look. Um, I mean, McSweeney's did and and still does, although it's gotten a little busier. Um, there's the site I shot. Um, there was surgery of modern warfare. Uh, and then there was the site Ellie May that was, uh, kind of huge for me becoming, becoming a, a writer or, or be- helping me become a better writer. And I always really liked, there were a bunch of those sites that were just really straightforward and minimal, just kind of a block of text with a title and, and the name of the journal up top and like no frills or anything. So when when me and Crow started talking about had that was kind of the idea from the get go. It was like how how minimal can we can we make this look? Yeah, I really dig that vibe. I mean, it's very Thanks. interesting just to read the stories and not get distracted by all the other things, like say like ads or like recommendations for other stuff to read and stuff like that. Yeah. I know Walden House relies a lot on images, and I I don't know. I dig that, like, Had doesn't. Yeah, and, like, you know, I mean, everything on Hobart gets gets paired with an an image, and and it's one of my favorite parts about Hobart is is trying to match the vibe of the story with a photo, and then sometimes for for special special feature-type stuff, like, commissioning uh art for it um and i and i love it but then also kind of wanted to do something a little different and and then also i don't think i had this in mind i think the intention was just entirely i like those old sites let's make this look like 2002 era web journal (laughs) um but then the happy accident was to it it just makes uh, editing and overseeing and working on the site so much easier. Like, I mean, formatting stories is just cutting and pasting it into a box. You know, I don't have to choose art. I don't have to think about what art does or doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. I don't have to sort of like worry about getting it to look just right on the site. It's all just kind of drop it in that box and it's ready to go. <laughs> See, I like that. That sounds so much easier. It's great. Yeah. Do you think it's weird? Like, I don't know. I always see you more as an editor. Do you think people see you more as an editor as opposed to a writer? Probably. Although, I don't I don't know. And I mean, like, you know, Hobart and, and now Had are, I'm sure, m- more known than, than my couple of books that are... Um, but... And I think I've had phases where I devote more time and energy to Hobart. 
um, in part because I just enjoyed it in part, maybe as an excuse to not, to not write myself. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. I, I think on the one hand, I don't, I don't really care what, if, if people think about me one way or the other, on the other hand, I don't know. I think it's cool if they, if there's an awareness of both, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have to go on your website to see more of your writing. But before I want to say this year, I always just kind of was like, yeah, he's the editor. He's the founder. Yeah. I mean, that's it's almost definitely more more common. Yeah. I mean, as an editor, I feel like I get the same thing, too. But yeah. Yeah. Like, I want to say I stopped I, writing for like a couple of years because I was so focused on Maudlin House. Do you ever do yeah. that? Yeah. No, totally. I feel... And and I don't think, you know, I'm curious if it was like conscious or, or purposeful for you or if it just kind of happened. Um, I know for me, it just kind of happened. Uh, I just kind of like, uh, I've definitely had phases where I didn't really write much for, for a year or two in part because, yeah, l- largely just focusing on editing, focusing on Hobart. Um yeah, it's definitely something I've fallen into. I, that's actually just a story of my life. I have just somehow <laughs> fo- like fallen into everything. Yeah, that sounds right. I'm I'm probably the same. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, very, I feel like very little in my life has had <laughs> intention, uh, and it's usually just kind of where where I fall. That's the best place to be. No intention. Yeah, yeah. I dig that. Though. That's really cool. Someone to relate to as an editor slash writer. I think you and I could be cool with each other, especially with your music tastes. It's damn fine. <laughs> Thanks. Do you watch uh, Twin Peaks at all? I, I don't. Oh. I feel like Twin Peaks is maybe the thing that it m- most feels like I would be into and I have never seen an episode. I was going to say there's a really great episode in The Return that actually has Nine Inch Nails. Oh, I heard about that. And I, I feel like I, I feel like that came out when I was also like in a little bit of a, of a renewed uh, Nine Inch Nails phase. And I, it, it made me extra curious, although I guess not curious enough to follow <laughs> through and watch it. <laughs> there's still time. But yeah. yeah, I kind of forgot about them for a while, and then that episode came out, and then the following summer, I saw Nine Inch Nails in person. So that was pretty lit. Oh, nice. Have you ever seen them How in was person? I have not. It was cool. They didn't draw as huge of an audience as I thought they would, but it was still really yeah. cool. There was a tour... Um, uh, and I actually bought the bought an on a record of it um a year or two ago um but they toured with david bowie in uh i think it was 95 who's the headliner i think they might have like traded on and off nights Mm -hmm. um so on on the record that i have uh bowie was the headliner um but there's kind of like an equal set of both. So it's like, it's actually a, 
I guess it's like a quadruple album. It's like one uh, one double album that's Nine Inch Nails, and then one double album that's uh, David Bowie. And then in the middle, there's two or three songs that that Reznor did with Bowie as like a segue from one to the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and he likes saying, you know, a couple Bowie songs with him. Maybe they did one Nine Inch Nails song together and, and two or three Bowie songs, I think. I like um, how collaborative Bowie is. Yeah, yeah. Or was, I, sadly. I always kind of wish I'd I'd gone to that. I mean, I would have been, you know, 17. Uh, it would have been, uh, I feel like, prime uh, that concert for that age. Oh, definitely. I think Bowie was the artist I think everybody wanted to see or regrets not seeing. Yeah. I remember at the time... I think my mom being like, oh, I, I kind of want to go to that <laughs> tour because she was a big Bowie fan, right? Like Bowie, like, you know, um, crosses, crosses genre or crosses generations. Mm-hmm. And I remember being like, you would see Nine Inch Nails live? And she'd be like, yeah. and she was just kind of like, yeah, if, you know, it, it might be interesting enough if uh, to see it with Bowie. And I remember at 17, that just blew my mind. I was just like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like you listen to boring old people music and I listen to cool young music. Um, I was but. blessed to have parents that don't listen to music. <laughs> so I just go with my siblings or myself to concerts. <clears throat> yeah, I went. So my mom took me to that MC Hammer concert because she knew I was 12 and loved MC Hammer. (laughs) Um, And I remember... She's not like regular moms. She's a cool mom. Yeah, yeah. We went with... So it was me, my mom, my mom's jazzercise friend, as as speak, peak uh, 1990 parent stuff. I was going to say, like, that is a cliche. The jazzercise friend's daughter, who was a few few years older than me. Please Um, tell me you've written about this. Uh, I think, I think one of the essays is, is about it. Yeah. Okay. In the book. Cause I, I'm getting such a later. visual and I would love to like <laughs> read that. Yeah. And then a couple years later I went to Bumbershoot, which is like this festival in Seattle every year. This like music and arts festival. And my aunt who lives in California, like came up and visited and, and I remember going uh, to Bumbershoot with my mom and my aunt. And uh, I think in general, like you buy a festival ticket and then you just walk around and there's like a bunch of street fair booths and there's concerts and you can like walk in and out of of any concert. Uh, and I remember we, we walked in and, and saw Chris Isaac. Um, mm-hmm. Cause I think my, my aunt thought he was really great. And so I think that was like technically maybe my second concert. Um, and again, you know, I don't know. I was like 13, maybe give or take. I wonder when wicked game came out. Um, uh, and I remember, I remember thinking it was funny and weird that my aunt liked this artist who as a pubescent boy, (laughs) <laughs> had very much liked the Wicked Game video. Uh, I feel like that's uh, kind of the yeah. aunt I'm going to be. 
<laughs> I already sort of am, but yeah. Yeah. So, are there any cool concerts you're, like, excited to go to? No, I'm excited to go back to small shows. Uh, mm-hmm. There's not, like, anything specific, but I um, feel like in the last few years, I got back into going to small mostly like death metal shows with a buddy here in town. That's um, like rad as fuck. I dig it. <laughs> uh, and, and I, and I super miss that. I super miss going to, you know, there's a club here in Detroit that, um, uh, that I really liked and would, would have a lot of, uh, bands come through who who I liked a lot um and and I miss going there yeah do you have like a peak concert moment like you totally had like a main character moment at a concert um so some of the other music essays are um I got pretty into going to small hardcore shows in college. Um, and so I, I like, I went to high school with these guys who, who formed a band that, that became like a, you know, a small niche hardcore band, but like for, for what they were, this like math rock heart, late nineties, hardcore band were like pretty influential. Um, and so I started going to see them because, because I knew them kind of, right? And they were just like guys, you know, uh, guys who were like in my English class with me. Um, and I was like, oh, Tim's in a band? Like, let's go see them. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that, that like literally changed my life. <laughs> like, you know, I, I feel like I was you know, 16, 17, 18. And like my favorite band was Pearl Jam and saw them, uh, I don't know, six, eight, 10 times. Um, they and do was a like really going, good act. They were, they were great. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and would like go down to Oregon a couple times with friends to sort of like see them down there and travel. Um, and you know, it was all like giant stadium shows by, by then. Um, and then I started going to these small, all ages, hardcore and punk and ska shows. Um, and you're the first person who's told me that you've gone to ska shows. Congratulations! I, I loved it. Yeah. Uh, and and at the time, I don't even think we diff- like it wasn't that we were going to a hardcore show or going to a ska show. It was like what are we doing this weekend? We're going to a show. And it was like, sometimes it would be one genre or another, or a lot of these bills would be, you know, like a weird punk band and like a hardcore band and a ska band. Um, and it was just all playing some all ages show. Um, and so I don't think that I have a specific show that stands out, but I don't know. I saw this band, uh, this band botch, like, um, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 times, <laughs> like, you know, it, uh, 
at, at a point in college, I mean, we would see them, we would go to a show probably almost every weekend or, or more weekends than not. Um, and, and they were just amazing. The most, the most fun, exciting, uh, things ever. Uh, and so that's what I think of when I think of like best, best live music experiences were, um, going to see botch when I was like 19. I dig that. I dig that. Just kind of like felt more in unison with the crowd, not doing anything crazy yourself. Yeah. And then, you know, I mean, some of those shows I was like, you know, getting up on the stage and like jumping off of it and like stage diving off of it and like, you know, screaming into the mic when the, when the (laughs) singer like holds it out and, um, uh, see, those are main character moments. Yeah. And all of those were like, like that was, that was seeing live music when I was 19 was like, um, and then just at the end of a show being like, Dripping wet with sweat and exhausted and and just like feeling euphoric. See, I wish more people felt that way about concerts. Like I have a few friends, but now like they're all like, oh, we're over 30. It's weird and awkward. I'm just like, no, it's not. You can still do it. Yeah, I feel like I didn't see many concerts in my 30s. Or when I did, it would be like w- with my ex and with her daughter and we would go see, um, you know, I mean, we, we saw some great shows. We would go see, uh, you know, the white stripes or, or go see these sort of, um, or bands that the kid was in when she was like 16 or whatever. Um, uh, and then, and it was pretty much all like larger shows, larger, like concerts, like stadium um, shows or like stadium shows or I guess sort of like, you know, a, the small version of those would be like a, mu- a, a music hall. But then also, you know, going to um, going to the baseball stadium uh, and seeing Eminem or like <laughs> going to the big outdoor venue here in Michigan and, and seeing Kid Rock or um, uh, and then. Like the last few years, my late 30s and, and early 40s got back into going to these sort of small 500 person uh, shows, like metal shows, with, with a buddy who's also, you know, an old, an old punk metal dude. <laughs> uh, and, and we go and, and have a few drinks and, and watch, uh, these metal bands with, you know, a few hundred other people and it's much less, uh, you know, it's me standing there sort of like, you know, doing the body, like the body rock, um, <laughs> and, and maybe moments of like slightly more exaggerated headbanging, um, and which is a, a much more restrained and older version of, of what I was doing at, at 20. But I mean, at least you weren't the guy with his like arms crossed and just staring. I feel right. like there's always those older people at the shows. I'm determined not to be that. It's a little bit of that, but it's 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 a little bit more motion in that, right? Yeah. Um, and Thank it's a God. blast. It's so fun. I dig that. Have you ever been to like any of the younger acts, like today's music? So 
who do you mean? Like, I don't even know who the, who that would be. So I guess probably no. But, um, um, let's think like Harry Styles, um, maybe Bleachers, no. although it Jack Antonoff has been around forever. Do we yeah. count Taylor Swift as newer? I don't know. I haven't. I, but so when the kid, I mean, newer now is, is, is for me, probably this is 10 years ago, but, um, when the kid was young, we went down to, uh, Ohio and there was like this outdoor music festival that in back to back years we saw, um, Oh, who are those brothers who, who were in a band? Good Charlotte? No, like not like like more poppy. Mm. Um then I don't know. Hanson? Uh hmm. I think even I think newer. Um mm. See at that point you've even lost me now. <laughs> oh, the Jonas brothers. Oh yeah. Um, okay, they So count. in back to back years at, at that we saw the Jonas Brothers and Demi Lovato. Um and like again, ten year like probably ten years ago now, I saw uh like Odd Future uh and Earl Sweatshirt a few times mm-hmm. uh, and Vince Staples. Um but I don't I don't even know who's who's younger and cool now. Uh I feel like who's ever like trending on TikTok right now. Yeah. I feel like I'm too old for that. I like to lurk because a lot of the (laughs) kids in my family have TikToks and I like to see the messed up stuff they do when their parents aren't watching. So when I'm teaching, you know, back to these, back to these freshman English writing, like they, they generally have like a research based argument essay and I encourage them to write about whatever. And when I when I first started teaching, I felt like I was still like a cool 30-something. And I and I I knew what they were into or listening to or talking about generally. Um and then now I've been teaching long enough that I've I feel like I've aged out of that. And so like in the last couple of years, I've had a couple of students um where when we're brainstorming for things to talk about and, and one of the kinds of things that you can write about for this essay is like a trend. And you, um, and so I've had a, a handful of students write about mumble rap and I've had to be like, you, you have to tell me what this is. Like you have to explain <laughs> it to me or loud or like SoundCloud rap or whatever. And it's like, I don't, I don't know what that is. So you so part of your essay, you have to like, tell me what it is. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty damn big these days. Yeah. Just kind of mumble in general. I mean, because I think that's kind of what, like, Billie Eilish does. It's kind of like mumble, indie, whatever. I don't know what genre she's in. These people are so hard to actually label. Maybe they like that. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like at this point I'm mostly listening to, like, old person death metal or... (laughs) uh, or like rappy rap, uh, like like, um, uh, like Kendrick or or somebody who's like you know, kind of throwback like rapping rap, uh, or I'm I'm breaking out all my old '90s records. I dig it. I dig it. I usually get yelled at for playing um, 
they all call it hipster music in my family. So I'm old now, you know, because I'm doing like Vance Joy and Tudor Cinema Club, stuff like that. See, I'm too old to even know what that is. <laughs> like, it's so funny how the generations go because, see, I know your music, but you're never going to get too into my music. And then Gen yeah. Z knows all of our music and it just keeps going backwards like that. <clears throat> yeah, at least I feel like at least one kid every semester will like want to talk about 90s music with me. <laughs> I'll be like, this is the stuff that I listened to when I was literally the age that you are right now. And you weren't born yet, but like you're, you're having this big, you know, whatever. Uh, They're going through their angsty phase. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's funny. Yeah. God, I love that. Okay. Um, do you have anything you want to read? I have like a long single sentence essay that published on no contact last month that might that might be a good read um i can try it we'll see how it goes yeah let's do it all right um so it's called attachments or a short essay about email that turned into a metaphor for any number of things c colon divorce family writing regret Fill in your own blank. A warning banner along the top of my email tells me you're out of storage space and will soon be unable to send or receive emails until you free up space or purchase additional storage. And although I like the idea of not being able to receive any more emails, the freedom of it, the actual idea of not being able to send or receive any more emails is... I wouldn't say it terrifies me, but I wouldn't not say it. And so I start scrolling through emails and folders. I do an advanced search to find all emails with attachments over 20 megabytes. And writing this later, i.e. now, I think about that word, attachments, the weight of it. But in the now of the actual present tense of this happening, I don't, not yet. Instead, I see an inbox search full of emails with large pictures or PDFs or other large files, and deleting all or even some of these would of course be the quickest, easiest way to make space. They are the very emails, the pictures and PDFs and other large files, the attachments I don't want to part with, not yet. And so, returning to looking for alternate ideas, I click on my drafts folder, and there's more emails than I ever would have guessed. Or, not emails, not yet, email drafts. And first, I imagine myself as a kind of person with nothing at all in this folder, clean and organized and spare and minimal. And then I imagine myself as a kind of person whose email drafts are all emails I wanted to send but didn't. A folder of things that at some point I felt needed to be sent, but then knew to also be better left unsaid, or at least unsent. All rather than the kind of person I actually am, and the drafts folder that this actually is, which is a collection of emails started just to find someone's email address to then cut and paste into a different actual email, 
or emails started, forgotten about, and then started again later after forgetting the first attempt. Or emails started as a placeholder for comments for student papers to then cut and paste onto actual student papers. Or any number of other disorganized, temporary, forgotten chunks of text. And I don't need any of them. That's the very reason they're here. But I like them. This graveyard of unimportant ephemera. And so I go looking through my email again, and I find a folder titled 2012 Travel. And I know that if I click on it, even just to verify the emails inside being too old for me to ever have a need for again, that I will find something my brain will want to classify as necessary or interesting or some other excuse for holding on to. And so instead, I drag the whole folder to the garbage without looking, which opens up enough space to nullify the almost full warning. I am no longer in danger of not receiving any new emails. Although, even now, I know I have only deleted enough storage that this is all going to happen again in a week or two or three, but I can deal with that then. I don't need to right now. Has that ever happened to you? So that's attachments. I dig it. Awesome. Thanks. I've learned to pause for a little bit when people... <laughs> finish their readings just because I'm like to make sure it's over over <laughs> yeah because I've made the mistake before you never hear it in the podcast because I edit that part out <laughs> but yeah where I'm just like that was great and they're like I have four more lines and I was like oh you paused for a while it's like this the the quiet part in a song right where sometimes somebody will like start clapping thinking the song is over and then they're just like no it's 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 not over yet <laughs> See, that was me the first time I saw Gone with the Wind in theaters. Like, I hadn't oh, read funny. the book yet. And there's a part where they're, like, cut, and they're like, okay, intermission. So at the beginning of intermission, I was like, that was a great film. Hell yeah, let's go. <laughs> I had forever ago when I was, I guess, sort of, uh, I think I was in college and got together with a few buddies to watch the right stuff. And everything was still... No, it was, it was, I think I had one friend who had a DVD player, like the first friend who had a DVD player. Uh, and so we, we rented the right stuff, but it was like such early era DVDs that they could only fit so much content. And so a lot of those early DVDs would be like double sided. Mm -hmm. Um, and you would like, and the right stuff is a longer movie. And so similar, like, uh, you had to like flip the DVD over halfway through the movie, but we didn't realize that we put it in the wrong side. So it just <laughs> started like an hour and a half into it. We didn't know. We were just like, wow, this, this movie starts really in media res, I guess. Uh, and then it ended and we were like, that was only like 80 minutes. I thought this movie was supposed to be super long. And we're like, Oh wait, we only watched the second half. I dig that. Before we wrap up, do you want to plug anything? Um, I don't think so. I'll have a novel coming out next year called Year of the Buffalo. Uh, and then I don't know, just look at my website or, or follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's both are pretty much my name, aaronbirch.net or aaronbirch with two underscores in between my name on Twitter. Mm -hmm. All right. That's pretty lit. Cool. Thanks, Mallory. Yeah.
rad. That was Aaron Birch, and he just read a piece that was published in one of my other favorite lit presses, No Contact. If you want to know more information about No Contact, I recommend checking out episode 18, where I talked to their founder about our mutual love of Lana Del Rey and Jenny Lewis. If you paid attention to this one, you'll see I also have pretty big love for the grunge scene from the early 90s, like Aaron Birch. Definitely diversify the kind of music you listen to, or else all progress you've made as a human being is lost. Experiment with new music, new sound. It will change the way you think and the way that you create. And that's basically what the point of this podcast is. If you want to find out more about Aaron and his writing, check out his website, aaronbirch.net, or find him on Twitter at Aaron underscore Birch. On the website, you'll be able to find all the fiction pieces and music essays that we spoke about on this episode. I also highly recommend you checking out Hobart and his most recent project, Had. They both put out some of the best literature online right now, and I doubt you won't find something you'll like. As always, if you want to get to know us more, find Textual Healing on Twitter, at PodHealing, and take a look at our website, textualpodcast.com. If you want to be extra supportive, take a look at our Patreon, where you can either help support our podcast or get behind-the-scenes content and other merch related to the podcast. We are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe, leave a review, leave a rating. We love it when you send us good vibes. Check out past episodes and keep a lookout for the raddest fuck ones to come. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show.